Welcome to this week's Into the Wilderness podcast. It's actually been brought to you a little bit earlier than expected. We were going to put out the show between Christmas and New Year and we decided to put it out just before Christmas because normally people are very, very busy. And for any new listeners, I am one of your hosts, Daryl Pace, and the person sitting next to me that you can't see is Byron Pace. And this show, in fact, it's another reason why we brought out this show early, is about Woodcock. It is. And Woodcock have been in the shooting press over the last couple of weeks for good reason. Uh, One, it's a quite incredible species. Uh, But secondly, there are some, uh, there is some data over the sampling of some of the, the ringing sites that they have, which has suggested that there has been a smaller proportion of juvenile birds coming into the country this year. And so there has been some uh, voluntary restraint asked for by the GWCT when it comes to actually shooting woodcock so that we can protect our populations uh, for future years. You're going to hear all about this and in great detail in this podcast, which is two interviews, one with Andrew Hoodless from the GWCT and the other one from Owen Williams, uh, who's a wildlife artist, but also a man who is incredibly Uh, fascinated and taken with Woodcock, as you will hear from his interview. Um, And he also has been uh, ringing Woodcock since, uh, I think, for the last 20 years or so. Who are we going to hear from first? We're going to hear from Owen first, because I think it would be better to to hear. We've got about 50 minutes with Owen, uh, and then the rest of the podcast is with Andrew. And Owen will give you a really good uh, overview of... The, the situation of Woodcock historically and where we are now, uh, a little bit of the, the current research, some of the what it actually means to ring Woodcock and collect biometric data and how that is then used. And then Andrew's going to go on and talk very much with his science head on because that is what he is, is representing here and talk about the the current research and what we know about the populations of woodcock and importantly why we should be interested in them and take on board their advice yeah not ignore it no absolutely not uh, so it's going to be it's an absolutely fascinating uh, podcast i learned a lot of things doing these interviews about woodcock that i didn't know previously and anybody who shoots woodcock throughout the season or have has done should really listen to this because I'm, I'm pretty confident you'll learn something you didn't know before so what's next Byron competition yeah so we're not going to announce the winner of the competition for two from actually only a week ago now because as Daryl said this podcast is, is out, out early, early yeah uh, so that is going to run now until the podcast that we put out right in the start of January that was for a a, uh, a bumper Christmas prize of a Hornady vintage reloading sign, a Hornady beer mug, and a Tipton cleaning rod. Uh, and also, you wouldn't get it in time for Christmas anyway, no. so it, it doesn't matter that it's... Uh, We're going to have go, to wait till January. Wait until January. If you want to enter that, you can email us or look on our social media. There is a post up with a picture of them, and it tells you how to enter. I think it's just a tag a friend type deal, and the winner will be picked at random. Uh, we forgot to mention this on the last podcast, was that we also have the winner for the J-Bolt Designs uh, cufflinks, 
we have some Hornady cufflinks that were made by J-Bolts Designs, and they were given to us quite quite a few months ago now. So we've been running this competition. Is, is there going to be a second competition? An, yes, yeah. there, there is. Um, there is. We're, we're not we'll, going to. We'll do that in the new year because yeah, everyone's going to be so busy. There's um, essentially it's like a, a leather leash keyring, also uh, made with. I've actually been eyeing it up for myself. But <laughs> it's sitting on my desk. Yeah, that one has a one seven Hornet case, sort of embedded in the leather. The cufflinks, which I'm about to announce the winner, was a set of Hornady 375, um, he- uh, well, it's the, he- the head of the case, essentially, that's been made into a cufflinks. Did and you it, fire it? I, yes, and they were fired. Well, I can't be sure. They were either fired by <laughs> me or one of my f- friends who I let uh, shoot my 375. I, I can't remember now. They were in one box of empty cases that I had. So I sent them down, and uh, yeah, they were made into some rather fantastic cufflinks. Uh, we had a ton of entries for this over weeks and weeks, and completely randomly selected is Graham Kerr. So congratulations, congratulations Graham. Graham. Uh, contact us, and we will get those shipped out in January for you. We will indeed. Uh, we said all our thank yous last time in the previous show because we didn't know this one was coming out, uh, but we'd like to say thank you again to all of our listeners that have been listening for the last uh, two years or our recent listeners that have just joined us and uh, to all the people that subscribe because we know we've got a large amount of subscribers and if you don't subscribe to the show, hit subscribe. Uh, we're also on a huge range of uh, podcasting apps. Uh, we're on Podcast Addict, Podbean, Overcast, iTunes, Stitcher. Uh, we're now on YouTube. It's also uploaded to Facebook as an audio format as well. So we are now everywhere. And if you're on a, a format that you don't particularly like, then there's a few options for you there. We're also on SoundCloud, which is good for desktop. And if you're feeling in the Christmas spirit, Go and give us a review. We haven't had a, well. Yeah. There probably has been a few reviews that I haven't seen, but we haven't had as many as we've had in sort of the previous twelve months. So give us a December review. That you, would be much. You can you can leave it anywhere. You can leave it on iTunes. You can leave it on Facebook. Uh, yeah, that will do. And especially if you're from not not from the UK, uh, because we have a small amount of reviews from different countries, uh, but we would like more. We would. Uh, Another competition which uh, I mentioned last week, which I'm just going to mention again to remind you, uh, and if you go on to Facebook you will see this, is we are giving away a pair of tickets for the DNA Film Festival, which is a film festival that we have launched next year at the Northern Shooting Show. It's on the Friday night before the actual show itself. Uh, It's going to be quite an event there's going to be a lot of people there a lot of uh, people um, in the industry you'll probably see some faces that you recognize it's going to be a couple of speeches and um, a short list of the winning films is also going to be shown so go over check out our instagram uh, pace underscore brothers and our facebook pages on the dna film festival page go and give that a like and on the podcast page uh, as well you will see the chance to win a pair of tickets it's just going to be a case of tagging a mate and if you don't know what we're talking about, then head over to our website. Yes. And you can see all about the film festival there. And the last thing I want to mention is we still have one place available for our wilderness hunt in January. All the information on the wilderness hunt, what it's about, is on our website, thepacebrothers.com. Find wilderness hunt tab, click it, it'll take you to a page. You can read and see some pictures from previous hunts. And for our podcast listeners, we're giving you the chance for this last place to get £300 off the list price. Just mention when you message us that you're a podcast listener. And uh, if you don't get what you want for Christmas, this is the perfect alternative gift to give yourself. 
Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and by the time this goes out, it's going to be too late to order anything from the shop for Christmas, but we will still be taking orders. Anything that comes uh, from now until Christmas will only be posted in the, at the start of January start when we're January, back in the yeah. office. So, uh, yeah, like Byron said, if you order now, it, it we'll still process it, but it will only be posted in January because we do not want it getting lost in the manic of the last three days no, of Christmas. Absolutely not. So uh, that's it from us. You're going to hear from these very two interesting gentlemen now uh, and enjoy your Christmas and New Year. Owen, thanks very much for joining us on the Into the Wilderness podcast today. Uh, by way of introduction for our listeners, can you give me a little bit of background about who you are and specifically your interest in woodcock? Because that's going to be the species that we're going to focus on today. It's a, a species of bird which has very much been in the shooting press in the last couple of weeks. And between yourself and, and Andrew Hoodless who, from the GWCT, who undoubtedly you will mention, we're putting this podcast together really to give some background and information to everybody out there about what is a fascinating bird. Yeah, well, I, um, I, my, my roots and my interest in woodcock started, like many others, um, as a shooter. Um, and uh, living in the west of Wales, where we get uh, a large number of overwintering woodcock, mi- migrant woodcock coming in from Russian Scandinavia, uh, it's a species I've been aware of for a long time. And through my life, uh, my interest as a shooter has merged into becoming... Uh, a sporting artist, and I paint many paintings of woodcock, and I also sculpt bronze sculptures of them as well. Um, and it was really uh, around about 10 years ago that uh, my interest in the species and curiosity about the species um, got me involved with the idea of becoming trained as a uh, as a bird ringer to put rings on woodcock um, to help with uh, with the scientific research, the amazing research that GWCT and Andrew Hoodless in particular was doing on woodcock. Um, it, it really struck me that at that time that although there was this amazing research going on, it was very much restricted to a few isolated locations uh, within the UK and that we weren't getting a national picture uh, of woodcock, which is also important when it comes to a migrant species uh, and, and indeed as a quarry species. And so I went about getting trained to uh, to ring woodcock. And I was very fortunate to find a guy fairly local to me who had experience of some of the techniques of catching birds at night, which is how we catch them. Uh, and he very kindly agreed to take me out and train me how to catch woodcock. Um, and I became qualified to do so in 2008. Uh, so that's really my background. Um, and the more I've learned about woodcock, the deeper my curiosity has become about the species. So I'm now sort of uh, very, very much absorbed in, uh, in woodcock. Uh, but I, I hasten to add that I am not a scientist. Um, I'm an artist by profession. I suppose you could call me a citizen scientist. Uh, but Andrew Hoodless is the the real expert. In fact, he's probably fair to say the world expert on uh, on the species. Just backtracking a, a little bit about the actual capturing and ringing, we'll go into to detail about the sort of the state of woodcock in this country and understanding a little bit about migratory patterns and and, and native breeding. But how how do you go about actually? 
capturing a woodcock? And then what do you do once you've got it in your hands? Well, um, most people know woodcock from um, hunting them. And um, when you do so, you know which places to go. And that's invariably uh, dark wooded valleys uh, and deep cover where woodcock um, prefer the solitude to the daytime. And it's only really uh, towards evening as people um, see woodcock flighting out of woodland, uh, heading out for open pasture to feed on earthworms uh, through the night. And um, that's the place, the only place really, that you can effectively go out and catch woodcock. They're unusual in that um, the method of capture for woodcock is very different for most species of British birds. And this explains why it hasn't been done very much uh, over the history of bird ringing in general. Um, the technique then is to use a lamp uh, and you spot them on the field using a lamp and a long-handled net, like a, a landing net, uh, and you stalk up on them uh, with the, the lamp um, shining on them uh, and then you drop the net over them. But it does require quite a lot of skill and stealth to get close enough to get to the point where you can actually get the net over the bird. And then once you've got the bird in the net, you're not just ringing them, you're also collecting uh, quite a lot of data. Talk me through the kind of measurements and what it is that you're capturing from them and then maybe what they're also used for. How is it useful to gather that information? Well, that's right. I mean, a lot of people think that uh, bird ringing is purely about putting a metal ring with a number on it on a bird's leg, uh, recording where that was done, and then if the bird is either shot or found dead, recording where it's recovered, and that gives us a picture of uh, migration. Uh, and that's very true about ringing, but there's a lot more that we do besides that. Um, basically, that involves uh, measuring and weighing and aging the bird, um, and we're also, while we're out catching woodcock, we're also uh, conducting counts on the ground and monitoring when we first see them arrive. So this is all really very useful background um, data, which uh, is of use currently to um, Andrew Hoodless at GWCT and is available through the British Trust for Ornithology on their database for future research as well. So it's providing uh, a, a decent data set. It's quite interesting looking back over the history of ringing, which just, it, just incidentally started with Lord William Percy on the Annika State in 1891. His curiosity uh, as a shooting young lad at that time, as a shooting person, um, was about what happened to their native woodcock, their Annick, and did they fly away and migrate in the winter? Uh, and that led him to start putting homemade rings on woodcock there. And that was very much the start of woodcock ringing. Uh, the history of it is fairly complex, uh, but it's reasonable to say that not many birds from that date until around about the mid-80s, um, not many woodcock were caught and ringed because they're fairly difficult to catch. Uh, and it's only since um, I started something called the Woodcock Network, which is a group of about 30 or just over 30 people now who are catching and ringing woodcock up and down the country, that we started getting reasonable numbers ringed. So um, the average, I guess, between 1909, when ringing really took off, um, and when the Woodcock Network started in 2008, uh, probably about uh, a couple of dozen, a few dozen woodcock caught each year, 
we're now catching around about 1,400 a year. So that's, that's giving us a very good data set with which to research the species. Hmm. Uh, when you were talking about the, the measurements taken, one of the aspects you said was ageing. I was curious to know, how. Uh, what is it that you look at for the ageing process? Well, this is a technique, and I, I have to just hasten to add that this isn't pioneering work here because... Um, uh, Yves Ferrand, who uh, was the head of the French Game and Wildlife Department, pioneered both the capturing technique and um, the uh, and ringing in France. And so what I've done here is replicate in a smaller way what he's established in France for quite a few years now. Um, but he also pioneered a way of aging woodcock by looking at uh, a number of feathers key feathers sets on the wings of woodcock and from that you can determine not its age in in, um, in in real detail but you can certainly discern whether you are holding a juvenile bird or an adult bird and that is uh, a fairly important bit of information uh, to have. Yeah, and we'll, we'll get on to that because that's, uh, that's one of the aspects of why we're talking about woodcock particularly um, this year. But do you know um, how old a woodcock, I mean, it's quite a basic question, this, but do you know how old woodcock actually can live? Well, um, yes. I think the problem with this species is that there's been so little research done on it that we don't have any really accurate data, although that picture's now improving. Um, it was thought around about three to four years was the lifespan of a woodcock. Um, and I suppose when you consider this as a species, uh, many of them fly thousands of miles. The mortality rate must be fairly high because the risk of crossing the North Sea with all that weather going on in spring and autumn must be uh, fairly dangerous to the species. Um, but but it is, uh, it is, it, it's um, a fairly uh, well-known and I certainly there, there is uh, evidence now beginning to emerge that we possibly underestimated the lifespan. I'm certainly catching quite a few birds now, or recapturing birds uh, five or six years after I put a ring on them. So we may have to revise that estimate of age. I think the record, if my memory serves me correct, is something like 12 or 13 years for the oldest recorded um, woodcock. Um, but I, I think we're probably looking around about five to six years on average. Huh. And for those people who maybe they know the bird, they know what it looks like, but don't have a clear picture of the makeup and the population that we have here in the UK and where I, when I live up in Scotland, can you paint that picture for people between the native population that we have that stay here and the migratory pattern, just explaining uh, people where they're coming from and the times of year that they're moving around? Yeah, that's a very good point, because um, you're right to point out that we have a native population, uh, and that population um, breeds in uh, quite a few areas of the UK, but not in the extreme west. And so here in West Wales, where I am right now, and in parts of Cornwall, they have never bred in any great numbers, if at all. And the same applies to the west uh, of Ireland. And that is probably due to rainfall and um, wet springs, possibly that cause it, you know, cause it problems with uh, broods hatching and survival rates. But we don't really know the answer to that. But um, looking back historically, uh, there's a very interesting story to tell about woodcock in the UK and in Ireland. Um, my reading has revealed that um, around about 
well, beginning of the 19th century, so from around about 1810, um, there were very few reports in Ireland um, and many places in the UK of woodcock actually nesting. But something happened between then and the end of that century, so around about 1890, where um, they suddenly started nesting in many places and became very abundant as a breeding bird. There's a lot of speculation as to why that was, and it could be that shooting estates, planting and maintaining woodland uh, coverts for pheasant shooting provided ideal habitat. But equally, it might be because of um, climate change. Um, we know that uh, the Little Ice Age extended into that century, and it was very cold, and we had very severe and cold winters at that time that may have made uh, rearing young in cold, wet springs very difficult. But anyway, that, so that is our, um, our, our UK population. Um, they spread into Scotland and breed there um, quite, in a quite widespread manner in Scotland, uh, there's a big population uh, breeding down in the New Forest and in various places through the Midlands as well, uh, Cumbria, and then and, and a lot of uh, the east uh, of Ireland as well, and up into the Western Isles of Scotland, there are a few breeding up in there as well. But what we do know about that species, which is significant, and this is goes back to Lord William Percy's ringing, um, is that those resident woodcocks that were ringed as chicks, and caught not as we catch them today with lamps and nets, but actually ringed before they fledged um, on on the ground uh, on the states. We've we've now learned that those birds don't migrate very far; they're fairly sedentary, and so that's the big difference between those and the migrant birds. So, just to recap, the population of our UK breeding population is around about 55,000. And there has been a drop recently recorded from about 78,000 breeding pairs. Um, and this contrasts with between 800,000 and 1,200, uh, 12, 1.2 million uh, migrant woodcock that come in around about October. And they stay, stay here through the winter and then fly back to their breeding grounds, which is Scandinavia, uh, the Baltic countries and Russia, um, they depart for those breeding grounds around about the middle of March. So they're basically here throughout the winter. So those two populations are uh, distinct, um, but of course then they mix once the migrants come in. And this is the basis of the advice that the Game of Wildlife Conservation Trust gave recently, um, advising people uh, not to shoot woodcock until the bulk of the migrants had arrived, which is estimated to be around about the end of November, by by which time most have come in. And that waters down the impact on our homebred birds, our resident population, uh, when you've got them mixed up with our resident population. So that that's really the background to that advice. Yeah, because I suppose it's just the law of averages then, if you've got such an influx of uh, visitors from from Scandinavia and elsewhere, then it becomes much less likely that you're going to shoot a resident population. That's absolutely right, and and in fact, recent research um, looking uh, at, a, at a slightly more complicated study using radio isotopes to establish where birds came from. This is work that was pioneered again by Andrew Hudless, um revealed that. From a sample of birds, shot birds from across the UK, it was estimated that less than 3% of the birds shot were actually our UK resident birds. 
But having said that, um, there is an impact on those who are shooting. And having seen that population decline in recent years, uh, it was very sensible to advise people to adopt um, the timing of, or adapt the timing of their shooting to mitigate any possible impact on our resident population. And the good news is that shooters have responded in a very positive manner to that advice. So if we're talking about the, the resident population and ignoring the, the birds that come in, the, the migratory component of it, what, what is being done or, or what is the view going forward as to how we protect that component of our woodcock population here or, I suppose, improve it because here we're talking about declines in that part of the population? Well, right now, um, the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust um, are researching the reasons for the decline in our resident population. And that was a very prompt switching of research away from the very exciting projects of monitoring birds on migration back to Russia. Uh, they then turned their attention to try and establish the reasons for this decline. And they've also included shooting in that survey as well, rather than dismiss it as not relevant, although it is suspected that it doesn't have a major impact. Uh, they decided to include that in their research as well. Um, and so that is going on right now. But in addition to that, the Game Wild Conservation Trust have been very proactive in advising people on the best suitable habitat for breeding woodcock and for wintering woodcock on shooting estates. And a lot of people who are forward thinking um, have adapted their management of their woodlands to, um, to look after um, their resident breeding population. There is ongoing studies um, done in conjunction with the British Trust for Ornithology um, and the Game Wildlife Conservation Trust uh, monitoring breeding woodcock in the UK, and that's done by counting the number of roading males through the courtship season in the spring. So that's been going on as well. But I think one of the points that needs to be made very strongly outside the shooting community is that most of this work is being done by shooting estates and by estate owners who very often are at their own expense are looking after their native population. And if we're really serious about looking after it, then um, the last thing you want to do is to remove it from the quarry list because then there's no interest in maintaining habitat for it. Um, and so the worry about this is that if, if people like Chris Packham gets his way and brings in a ban on woodcock shooting, the unintended consequence of that, although it might be exciting for them to think that no woodcock are shot, is that there will be no interest in that species in the shooting community, no um, creation and maintenance of good habitat for wintering and resident woodcock, and actually very significantly no funding for the research which is going on right now. Uh, shooters have always funded and been actually the sole funders of all the Woodcock uh, research, all the published science that's come uh, out about Woodcock has been funded by the shooting community. And so all of that would go as well, which is something that I think people need to think hard about. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting point that, and I, I didn't know that as fact, but just sort of thinking off the top of my head, in terms of interest in that species, all of it that I've ever seen has come from the shooting community, and that includes for, you know everything from research to um, habitat management. 
in terms of habitat management, what kind of things are we we looking at? From, there might be people listening uh, to the podcast who have a small syndicate shoot or maybe even have a farm, have an interest in woodcock, but haven't really known where to look to see what they can do to help. Well, I think uh, there are a couple of things that if people are really uh, serious about this, they can uh, do and get involved in. The first is to sign up to the yearly uh, woodcock survey, which is a study of roading birds. And there is a methodology that's been established by the the British Trust for Ornithology um, and GWCT on how that's done. But that requires people to go out and monitor over a series uh, of, of, of evenings um, and count the number of roading males they're seeing. So that's the first thing that um, people in the shooting community can do. Uh, details on, uh, from that can be found on the British Trust for Ornithology uh, website, which is www.bto.org.uk. Um, or they can contact Andrew Hoodless at the Game of Wildlife Conservation Trust if they want to do it that way. So that's the first thing that they can do to help. In terms of habitat management, I think one of the key things at breeding time is to try and maintain peace and quiet because what we do know about woodcock is that they don't tolerate disturbance when they're nesting and are very easy to abandon nests. It may not be the only reason why we've seen a decline, but I think it is quite significant that we've seen greater public access to woodland for amenity purposes in the last 20 years uh, with more people walking dogs, riding bikes and doing what they want to do in woodlands. And this is bound to have uh, an impact upon uh, breeding woodcock uh, and, and other breeding ground nesting species as well in woodland. And it's something that needs to be thought about fairly seriously. The research that's been done by GWCT will hopefully shine a light on that fact uh, along with many others. And what, one other point about um, looking after uh, breeding woodcock is, of course, that shooting estates uh, are very good at controlling predators. And so that has always been uh, a very useful thing um, for um, species like woodcock where crows uh, and some ground vermin are kept in check, particularly foxes and stoats and such like. Uh, And that's one thing that will help survival of broods and nests at breeding time. Um, There are other things that can be done um, in woodland to ensure that the habitat is ideal for breeding woodcock. And I think Andrew Hoodless, being the scientist, is probably a better place to give you the details on that. I'll ask him the question when he comes on. Say again? I'll ask him the question uh, when he comes on tomorrow. I'll I'll be sure to ask him the question about the habitat and uh, habitat improvement. Yeah. I, I think he can give you a lot more detail than I can on that. But certainly um, you, you can see when woodland has been neglected that uh, the understory um, is affected very rapidly by um, not enough light getting through and that starved light for uh, the vegetation uh, on, on the ground. That has a knock-on impact because there's less shelter and cover predation for chicks and so you want a bit of woodland where you get windows of light coming through um, in order to make the optimal uh, habitat for woodcock to breed. But uh, so those are the things that people can do and of course you know, underlining this because we're all shooters is to make sure that what you're doing in the way of shooting is as far as you can sustainable. So overshooting is going to have an impact both on our resident woodcock population 
and on the migrants. And one of the things that's been thrown up in my ringing, where I've ringed over 2,000 woodcock on my site here in West Wales, um, is that I'm noticing how many birds come back to exactly the same spot, often the same point on a field, year after year, each winter. And so that points to what we call a high level of wintering site fidelity. So it stands to reason if you're overshooting a piece of ground, then you're going to eventually shut off that traditional link with that population of breeding woodcock in Russia with your wintering habitat, your little bit of wintering ground. So my message to shooters for quite a few years, having discovered this fact, is that you are shooting your own woodcock. For many years, it had been thought that if you shot a few woodcock, well, they were just receiving massive migrants milling around the country and it wouldn't have any effect. But these are your woodcock. So that means you have to think very seriously about shooting pressure and sustainability. So do you find then uh, with, with the ringing that you've done that you'll have um, woodcock coming back and a success of generations of those woodcock are coming back to the same area? I wish I knew the answer to that, and it was one of my dreams <laughs> is to, uh, to, to be able to uh, DNA um, and get analysis of DNA to see whether the progeny of that bird comes back. What we do know, uh, and again from ringing this, is, this has been discovered, that the first birds that come back in uh, or, or come in during the autumn migration are juveniles, which is mind-boggling when you think that they don't follow their parents to their final wintering destination. This is hardwired into them, and they just do it because it feels right, and they stop when it feels right. And, you know, there's, there's a huge amount of science going on studying uh, migration of, uh, of birds, and it is a very complex matter. Um, but one of the the, the, the great things to discover is whether there are genetic links, um, a familial link with uh, woodcock in Russia, in a particular location in Russia and on the winter grounds. We, did, we do know that woodcock go back to their same breeding grounds. Uh, we're now discovering they use the same wintering ground. But that's, um, that's only happened because we've been ringing and being able to retrap birds and discover um, that they're coming back to the same place. Well, hopefully at some point in the future we will know that because that would be a fascinating link if we discovered that it was successive generations and that was somehow imprinted on them. But if you're saying that juveniles tend to come first, then I wonder whether that would be the case. Well, you know, we don't know an awful lot so far about uh, genetics and DNA and, and how that informs things like migration. And it might be a little bit more sophisticated than we assume but um, I, I, I think there's little doubt with some of the research that I've read that birds are very strongly hardwired to a particular wintering location, and that will have been passed on genetically. Um, I say to a wintering location, certainly to uh, a, a, an area or region. Um, and we can see this when we look at the migration pattern of the species as a whole. Um, when we bear in mind that the breeding range of woodcock stretches um, all the way from the west, so I suppose the most west, western breeding woodcock in Ireland, uh, and it goes all the way across um, Europe and across Russia to Vladivostok in the east. So it's a huge swathe, a long strip of uh, boreal woodland, basically, where woodcock breed. 
And if you look at the migration trends all the way across from east to or west to east, you'll see that they fan out to the nearest warm climate that they can find. So in the Far East, those birds are migrating southeast rather than southwest. So they're going down into Japan and down towards Korea um, to overwinter, to get away from the harsh winter. So those birds have definitely been wired in a slightly different way to the birds that fly southwest to us. And somewhere in the middle of that sort of huge swathe of breeding, there, there is possibly a dividing line. And one of the experiments I'd love to do would be to take a brood and put tags on them from the east of that imaginary line, put them over to the west and see whether they still fly in a southeast direction or now that they're in a different location, end up flying in a southwest location. So, you know, all these things are there for us to research at some stage when we get the technology to do so. Nature is amazingly complex. Um, just in relation to the, the main reason that we're speaking about woodcock in a, in a sort of heightened level this season, just paint that picture for me and why people need to be sort of particularly vested in the population and how they're shooting it this season in particular. Okay, well, I mean, I think having described what we've managed to achieve in the way of ageing woodcock, um, we're not alone in doing that. I mean, there is actually quite a community now of people studying and researching woodcock. Um, so the French, I mentioned before, have been doing it for quite a long time. They've encouraged um, ringers in Russia to monitor birds coming out of Russia on migration in the autumn. And this was the first time that we had any sort of inkling that there might be uh, a, a fewer number of juveniles um, coming out of Russia this year. Um, they certainly noticed that. Uh, and that was then picked up by ringers in France, but also shooters in France who were aging their woodcock from the birds that they'd shot. Uh, Italy also contributed some data that, that confirmed the picture of fewer juveniles. Um, and ringing and monitoring here in the UK confirmed that too. And so this was put together, um, and in the end, it was realized that um, the spring in Russia, in Western Russia, just at the time when those chicks are hatching, was very cold and wet. And so there was a high um, brood mortality at that time which will explain why we've uh, probably got fewer juveniles this year. All the evidence is pointing towards that. Um, I have to stress that this is probably not unusual. This probably happens. Uh, I know in 2010, during the breeding season, there was a severe drought uh, in, in a lot of Russia with forest fires. And at that time, it was thought that there was a high mortality. Now we've got a little bit better and uh, a bit more of an information network going on. We've been able to monitor uh, the numbers of juveniles better. And the important thing is that having, given, um, having found out about this uh, drop in the number of juveniles, we are um, uniquely in a position for the first time of being able to do something about it. And everybody knows that we have to look after future breeding stock. I and mean, there is what people refer to as a sustainable harvest. And certainly looking at the evidence of the number of woodcock we've had coming to this country, there is no concern about the migrant woodcock. Um, and so the International Union for uh, Conservation of Nature 
who monitor these things have a, uh, a system where they uh, give a status to a breeding status to birds and their view uh, as recently as 2016 was that the migrant population is stable and so we know that even though there are fluctuations with a stable population like that they will bounce back but that doesn't mean that we can ignore some of the evidence that there's been a poor breeding season because everybody who shoots woodcock would like to see them bounce back as quick as possible and this is why the advice has come out uh, from GWCT about restraint uh, and it is of course voluntary it's not uh, statutory um, but I think most people who are sensible will recognize the fact that now we know this it would be negligent not to reduce our shooting pressure and indeed uh, as a shooting community our uh, adversaries would point uh, very quickly to our ignoring the science on this if we decided to do nothing about it, having seen the data suggesting uh, fewer juvenile woodcocks. So I think for many reasons it's a very good idea for us to follow this advice uh, and reduce our shooting pressure. Mm, yeah, it, it makes sense to make the decisions that you, you make with the best information that you have at hand. And our main concern as, as hunters and as shooters should be the, the longevity of the species, which we call quarry. And uh, in this case, with Woodcock this year, uh, I would suggest, as you have suggested, to you know, abide by the voluntary advice from the GWCT, and I don't think you'll go too far wrong with that. That's absolutely right. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think, you know, you, you, you mentioned in your introduction that, uh, uh, that Woodcock arouse uh, a lot of passion and emotion. And, you know, we all have our own very special relationship with what I regard as probably the supreme quarry species. It has been hunted for, for thousands of years uh, and has been highly respected as a quarry species. It tastes good. It is... Uh, um, it, it, it's an amazing bird to hunt, uh, and I'm talking about hunting, not standing on pegs, shooting them as a driven bird, but the way I learned to hunt them, which is walking down wooded valleys through brambles and blackthorn with a dog, hunting them properly. That's a real and very wholesome experience and very sustainable because you bring back a brace with a load of scratches and bruises, and you consider you've had a damn good day out with the gun and the dog. Um, but the emotions that are aroused mean that uh, people are very defensive about their sport, and certainly in the social media debates that's ensued after this advice from QWCT, there have been a few people who have questioned uh, the validity of the advice or the, the, uh, or, or the data. And one of the things I'd like to get very clear, because I've heard it mentioned several times on social media, is people saying, well, I'm seeing more birds than ever at the moment, so so much about a poor breeding season. What I would stress is that how the population spreads across the country is very complex and there are many factors that can determine whether you see more woodcock or fewer woodcock uh, than normal in your area. But it's a huge mistake to make your judgment about the national status of woodcock in one winter based on just one or two locations or you and your friends seeing more birds. Numbers aren't significant with this because we know when we get very cold weather on the continent, we may well get very many continental birds joining the birds that normally come to the UK. So we may have a higher proportion of the overall population of woodcock 
in the west of Wales, for example, as I've noticed in very cold, um, snowy weather, the numbers on my ringing site shoot up. But the point isn't about numbers. Now we can look at juveniles and adults. That's much more significant. And so what I would argue is if people say they've got more birds, then there's even more reason to take care of the fewer numbers of juveniles that we've got this year. Because if they carry on shooting as if nothing is wrong and they've got more birds there, they will have more of the scarce juveniles there as well. So it's even more important in those areas for people to scale back their shooting. Yeah, no, that's it's an interesting point, actually. So uh, essentially you're saying that in, in bad uh, winters in Europe, you'll essentially get a proportion of their what would be their native population saying, I can't handle this, and they're coming over here with the migratory component. Yeah, and, and actually we're beginning to see now, particularly through the satellite tagging uh, and the fitting of geolocators or passive tags on Woodcock, which I've been involved in, um, in, in Wales in doing, we're seeing now that um, despite saying that birds come back to the same location, we are seeing variations on that picture from time to time. So you know, if the weather is particularly mild on the continent, then particularly the adult woodcock who have probably refined their migration strategy uh, a lot further than the, the crude DNA hardwiring we talked about earlier, those adult birds may decide not to fly any further than Holland or Germany if conditions are okay. There's a huge advantage in not taking that risky flight across the North Sea if you don't have to. And probably first and foremost, apart from not incurring any more risk, is the fact that you're slightly closer to get back to the breeding territory and fight for your territory and establish your territory in the spring. So it makes sense not to go too far. But this is complex stuff and there's a lot more research to be done. But um, we do know that there's a lot of flux that goes on with woodcock migration and certainly absolutely right if I mean, snow is the is the the really big factor with woodcock. Um, I was in Norway with woodcock hunters a few years ago, and they were relating how they had very heavy snow, and woodcock were on the beaches, scratching around amongst pebbles, trying to find stuff to eat. Uh, and a lot of them, there was a big mortality. Now, those birds were probably what was left over, perhaps the slightly less clever ones who hung on too late many, many would have made the flight across the North Sea to get to warmer, to a warmer bit of country um, to escape the snow. But if they can't probe down through deep snow, they will not be able to feed on worms. And that's the main factor that determines uh, when woodcock move off um, in cold weather. Ordinary frosts are possibly an issue, but what we've seen with woodcock is that instead of feeding on the fields at night, which, of course, are frozen solid, so they can't probe for worms. Those same birds will be in woodland scratching around, a bit like blackbirds do in leaf litter, probing um, in wet areas and spring areas where they can find something to eat. And they will spend a lot more energy flying around from location to location, finding enough to, to live off. But they're very adaptable in those conditions. But when the snow comes, they can't probe, and that's when they really have to move off.
That ties in uh, quite nicely with the, another aspect I was going to uh, going to ask you to elaborate on, which is that uh, apart from the the voluntary restraint which GWCT have asked for this year, we already have a voluntary um, code for bad weather in this country. For those people, although everybody who shoots woodcock should know it, for those people who are maybe not aware of it, just tell us what that is and, and why we should be uh, well, why we should abide by the voluntary code. Well, this is set up um, as a part of uh, the code, the, the severe weather code for shooting of wildfowl. So basically woodcock were lumped in with wildfowl. Uh, and it's based on, and I'm not sure the exact number of, uh, of weather recording uh, I think bases. it's 10, but, and I should know that as well, but I always look it up. Um, I, will, yeah. I, will t- I will look it up and tell people at the start of this podcast so they can be certain when they get to this point. <laughs> that would be useful. Um, I, I think there are, yes, uh, and, and so the way that it works is if there's seven days of, um, uh, of, of uh, below zero temperatures, then people, there's a, a voluntary um, moratorium on shooting woodcock. After, I think, 14 days, it becomes a statutory ban on shooting woodcock and wildfowl all, all clumped together under the same regulations. Um, again, because of the research we're doing and monitoring weight, uh, quite a lot of my weight data has been used to look at how uh, woodcock um, look after their energy reserves in different weather. And there's a paper hopefully about to be published using that data which investigates this. But one of the things that is very clear is that wildfowl can scratch a living on an estuary, which in very rare circumstances freezes over completely and makes feeding impossible. Woodcock tend to live in colder places, possibly at higher altitude. So there is an argument that goes that we shouldn't be using the same regulations for woodcock and snipe as we do for wildfowl that mostly end up on the estuary. Um, But certainly uh, when cold weather comes, it, it is noticeable and certainly in my ringing I mean I was out ringing last night and because there has been cold weather recently I've noticed the difference in behavior with woodcock when the weather gets cold they tend not to fly they tend to when you get near them instead of just leaping and taking off and flying away they will start running to avoid being caught, which is quite comical if anybody filmed me chasing <laughs> a woodcock around in circles on a, on a field at night it would make a very funny little film but that's what they do and I, my, I figure the reason they're doing that is to conserve energy. Flight using those big flight muscles is very wasteful of energy unless you really have to do it. So they adapt their strategy to maintain uh, their energy reserves uh, in colder weather. And so when people say they see exhausted woodcock, those birds are probably not exhausted. Some might be because they maybe just arrived after a long flight. But actually they're conserving their energy reserves because there may be a fortnight of cold weather ahead of them. And so they have to be, adapt their strategy to accommodate that. Um, and it isn't really very sporting shooting a bird because they tend not to fly very fast as well. They tend to flop along. And nobody wants to shoot a bird like that. Most people who shoot woodcock want a good sporting bird. Um, and if they want to eat it, they want a bird that's plump and in good condition rather than something that's absolutely exhausted and worn out. And so... Uh, my view on that is I think people should stop well before um, the the voluntary moratorium on shooting woodcock. Uh, and I think a lot of people do that these days. Um, more should, but I think a lot of people do. Yeah, I, th- I think that there is certainly um, a shift towards 
being more vested in species like woodcock, the, the, the wild species, and how we shoot them and how we actually hunt them. I know, for example, um, a good friend of mine on an estate near us, for the last couple of seasons, <clears throat> he has actually decided that there will be no shooting of woodcock on the driven days when they're, when they're shooting um, driven partridge and pheasant. Because from his point of view, if you're hunting woodcock, you should be enjoying it for the hunt of the woodcock, and you should be remembering that bird or maybe that brace of birds and then enjoying everything that goes around it. It shouldn't just be it was in the sky while you're on a driven shoot, so somebody shoots it. You really need to yeah. care about the animal that you're taking its life, essentially, and it's especially when you're looking at a wild species like, like woodcock. So he has a complete ban on, on, on driven days. Very happy for little walked-up days for someone to take you know, a darting woodcock in a small valley, which is kind of what you described earlier. And I think that that kind of shift in the way that we think about hunting certain species is coming. It's maybe been a yeah. little bit slow in coming, but I see it in places now, and I find that quite heartening. I, I agree with you. I, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about that. And, and actually, you know, I, I saw this on my own syndicate shoot where I pick up um, the guys there who shot woodcock like anybody would in West Wales. They loved them dearly and who shot them all their lives. Um, bit by bit, gradually, as I was divulging some of the things I was finding out, people came up and said, you know, I'm not going to shoot as many woodcock. It was three weeks ago, one of the greatest woodcock shots on our little syndicate shoot said to me, I'm stopping. He said, I've done enough. I've had my fun. And certainly not on a driven day with pheasants. He said, I'm not going to bother to shoot a woodcock anymore. Um, this is largely because we are now educating people about the species and what an amazing species it is. And that information, because of the publicity that I've generated through my ringing and GWCT have done through their research, is beginning to filter through in the shooting community. Um, it, it, it does touch upon a very um, possibly an awkward subject in, in the shooting world, and that is the question about commercial woodcock shooting. And my, my view on this is having described what I would regard as real woodcock hunting, which is, you know, the brambles, the blackthorn and the dog and the mate. Um, I think that um, I would like people to start asking themselves why they would choose to spend a lot of money to go and stand on a peg and have woodcock driven over them. I know they're not the same as pheasant and they can be quite, uh, quite fun to shoot. But is this how we should be treating a wild quarry species? Um, and I do worry that a lot of people who probably had no experience of wild quarry shooting confuse woodcock shooting with driven pheasant. And that manifests itself, as I've seen occasionally on shoots, where somebody will shoot a woodcock, it gets put on the game cart, and at the end of the day, they don't bother to take it home <laughs> to eat it. Yes, no, And that, to me, is, is criminal. Um, if you shoot it, you eat it. Uh, it is not a reared pheasant. And if you don't want to do that, then you have no business raising your gun to it. Yeah, no, I would uh, whole, wholeheartedly agree with that. But I would um, just reinforce, probably, how, as we get to the concluding part of this uh, this podcast, reinforce something which you said earlier, probably halfway through this interview, which was the importance of making sure that we still have woodcock as a quarry species because of because of the interest and the care which has predominantly come from the shooting industry that's right i mean actually you need to look no further than the gray partridge to see an example of how that is working right now 
if Grey Partridge were removed from the quarry list, none of the great work that's been done in places like uh, Sandringham with David Clark and several other amazing estates around the country, uh, none of that work would have happened and we would not be seeing Grey Partridge beginning to climb back up as a quarry species. It's irrefutable that the passion for our species means that we invest money, time and effort into ensuring that future generations can enjoy the same sport that we do. And the much used example of the passenger pigeon and people saying, well, if we let shooters just carry on, that's what will happen. It will be extinction is not true. Um, That was a different era. It was a, a pest species and it was shot into extinction. That does not happen anymore, and um, we're already, as a community, talking about woodcock and the decline in the numbers and what we can do about it. And certainly, speaking personally, you know, if it wasn't for my involvement with woodcock as a quarry species, I wouldn't be painting pictures of them. Uh, I wouldn't be ringing them today. And it is, I think, a lesson that we that, that engagement with our natural world is a really important thing. We need to be engaged with it. Some people are engaged with it by looking at wildlife through binoculars. I engage with it by going out and shooting, but shooting carefully. And that's really the essence of this podcast is asking people to think very carefully about the impact and making sure that they're acting in as a sustainable way as possible with the evidence that we have got today and um, and future research. And, and one final message is that this, as I said before, has all been the initiative of shooters and funded by shooters. And that I would say that anybody who is out there shooting uh, woodcock should be investing in the research because that's the only way that we can fend off some of the difficult questions when it comes to a debate about shooting woodcock, we need the answers, we need scientific answers, because that's what's going to sway a politician's opinion. And it's no good just going, well, we don't know. Um, the opposition will use emotion. We will use science. And we saw how effective that was when the debate on driven uh, grouse shooting came up. They want to know the scientific facts, and uh, emotion doesn't cut it with them. Yeah, no, I, it's, it's something that we say a lot is that we, generally speaking in this country, as shooters, don't think about and don't invest enough in the research and conservation projects that are going on. If you look in the States, they spend a lot more time talking about and investing in conservation projects. The GWCT do a great job, but a lot of uh, people who hunt and shoot uh, don't take the time even to read the research that the GWCT is doing to educate themselves or indeed um, put their hand in their pocket and, and help. And as you've just said, if you are shooting woodcock, you probably should be putting a little bit back in, if you're not, especially if you're not going to be doing anything in terms of habitat yourself, into the research projects. And we are actually, we <clears throat> haven't, uh, well, we, this can be the announcement of it, but we're going to be doing some fundraising around a film festival, which we've uh, launched in the UK next year. And the money from that is going towards the Woodcock Research with the GWCT. Excellent. Um, That's excellent news. Well, I, I, there's one further point I would like to squeeze in, and that is that I, I agree with you, we don't invest enough. But there are some good things going on. And, you know, we've talked a lot about GWCT. I I have to say that BASC and what they're doing with the uh, Wildlife Habitat uh, Trust um, is in in a much smaller way than Ducks Unlimited do in America, which is probably what you're referring to in terms of their investment in their sport. 
Um, but Basque are doing great work and they're green shoots. And so I, I see the two organizations um, doing uh, a lot of good work. And yes, we need to support them, both those organizations. But right now we need good, proper, peer-reviewed science. And that's the one thing that GWCT are excellent at. And in a way, because they are purely scientific, they can't campaign other than putting scientific facts on the, on the table. They can't campaign for shooting as well as uh, Basque can do, who are a shooting lobbying organization. Uh, and my argument is be I'd like to see them working a lot closer together uh, in looking after our future shooters. And, I, and I'm sure that's, uh, that will happen because I think there's a, a much better dialogue between those two organizations um, in, in recent years, and particularly over Woodcock as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and I also think that as individual people um, who have a vested interest in the countryside, a lot of whom uh, do some form of field sports within it, if we can just, and I implore people listening to this podcast, if we can just spend a little bit more time to learn a little bit more, just like if you've got to this point in the podcast, just like you've done by listening to this on Woodcock, then we'll be in a much, much better position to take what we hold very dear uh, into the future and make sure it's there for, for future generations. Great. I couldn't agree more. Excellently put. Absolutely. Uh, Owen, thank you very much for taking the time to come on the show today. Uh, it is much appreciated. We're going to speak um, with Andrew next uh, tomorrow, and he's going to be the second half of this podcast. Uh, I'm sure that people have found that absolutely fascinating, and I hope at some point uh, I get to have a conversation with you face-to-face. -face. Great. Well, let's do that. That would be fun. Andrew, thanks for taking the time out to come on uh, on the podcast today. We had a great conversation with Owen Williams yesterday, and your, your name did come up, and of course we had already planned uh, to do an interview today. By way of introduction, could you just explain uh, to our listeners what your position is within the, the GWCT, and particularly uh, the relevance to woodcock, which is the species that we're talking about today? Uh, yes, Okay. Uh, so I'm head of wetland research at the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust. I manage a small uh, research team investigating uh, wader declines, but um, my particular interest is the Eurasian woodcock, um, which I studied for my PhD over 20 years ago at Durham University. Um, and I've continued various studies on this bird since. And what... In terms of painting a picture of the bird itself, for those, a lot of people will have seen it, but maybe don't have um, a full appreciation of the, the split that we have with the bird. We kind of went over it a little bit with Owen, but it'd be good to hear, hear it from yourself and in terms of the migratory sure. component as well. Um, so uh, the Eurasian woodcock's widely spread um, across the globe um, from roughly sort of 50 degrees north um, up to about 70 degrees north, so right across Russia, um, and that comprises one of the main breeding areas. Um, also, Scandinavia is, is a stronghold for our, our sort of global population of woodcock. Um, but in Britain and France and northern Spain, we have a you know, pretty small uh, resident breeding population as well. So in Britain, we're fortunate in that we see woodcock year round. Um, but as I say, that resident population is pretty small compared to the number of migrants that we get that are pushed off those more northerly and easterly 
breeding grounds um, at the start of autumn. As soon as the ground freezes, they're no longer able to feed and they're forced to move south and west to Britain, Ireland, um, France, Spain, Portugal, Italy, those sorts of places. So, so what is the the sort of state of the population of woodcock globally? And, and, and carry on from that to talk about their, their movement or pattern of movements throughout, throughout the year. Uh, so globally, and it is a pretty crude estimate, but it's estimated that um, there are 16 to 20 million woodcock um, globally. The majority of those, as I say, breeding in, in Russia across that extensive um, breeding range. Um, compare that to Britain, we estimate currently that we have a population of about 55,000 um, roading displaying males and probably a, a similar number of females. We have to sort of assume a one-to-one -one sex ratio because it's relatively easy to count males, but it's extremely difficult to, to count numbers of females. So what is the, the concerns with regards to woodcock as a species and how the, the, the population in terms of numbers has changed over time? Uh, so globally, the, the species is of least concern uh, on the IUCN's um, lists. Um, so, so there's no concern globally. And for the last 12 years, um, there's been a monitoring system in Russia uh, where regular counts of roading birds are undertaken, and that shows a stable trend. Um, a slightly different survey in Scandinavia also shows a stable trend over the last 10 years. Um, it's only really within Britain and Switzerland that we're starting to see declines in our, our resident birds. Um, and to be fair, we don't fully understand the reasons for that at present. So do we have any information with regard to predation? Predation is something that always comes up when you're, when you're lo looking at ground nesting and uh, birds, and partic particularly waders, it would be the one thing that people would, would pick up as a, an effect for declines in population. Uh, yes, absolutely. So, you know, I, I've got a number of, of theories, um, and I currently have a PhD student uh, looking at potential causes for the, for the decline. So with British Trust for Ornithology, back in 2003, we conducted a national survey based on counting uh, displaying males because uh, at that time, the woodcock was amber listed. Um, I queried the BTO estimate of numbers, so they were estimating about 12,000 um, roading woodcock at that time. And I just thought the figure was too low. So we teamed up with BTO, uh, conducted a, a randomized national survey, and that came up with a figure of 78,000 um, roading males. We repeated that survey 10 years on in 2013 and came up with an estimate of 55,000 males. So we believe there has been a decline. Um, and Chris, my PhD student, is now doing various analyses to look at those two data sets and try and explain the change um, across those sites that we've monitored. Um, so it's it's correlative work. It's not necessarily cause and effect. Um, but the the key one of the key things that that comes out in that analysis quite strongly is um, fox abundance. So 
we get a strong negative relationship um, between woodcock abundance and fox abundance. Um, but it's also quite clear that um, diversity of woodland is important. So we get a nice positive relationship with woodland diversity, the number of different stands within a woodland that's been surveyed. And also woodland size. It looks as though woodcock are starting to retreat to larger blocks of, of woodland. So are we seeing, um, or is there the potential for the habitat shifts that we've seen in terms of land management also having an effect on the on the resident population of woodcock that we have here? Yes, I, th- I think so. Um, so within that overall pattern that I've just described, there are clearly regional differences. Um, so areas like Dumfries and Galloway and um, Northern Wales are good examples. I, I strongly suspect that declines in, in breeding woodcock numbers in those areas uh, related to the forestry cycle. So, you know, uh, there was a lot of coniferous planting back in the late 50s, early 60s through to the early 1970s in those areas. A lot of that forest will now have matured, be pretty dark, have very little understory and and be pretty unsuitable for, for woodcock. Um, but as you're well aware, a lot of that is now being felled and replanted and second generation forestry might actually be quite good for woodcock. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see recolonization of those areas in the next 10 to 20 years. Is there anything that people can do as landowners or people with a vested interest, which is very often shooters with um, small syndicates in terms of, of habitat? Is the actual sort of grazing pressure of livestock and deer an issue with regard to these woodlands that the woodcock like to stay in? Um, So one of my hunches was that deer were going to be quite important in this story. Um, They haven't actually come out um, in our analyses, um, but it may be that our our indices of of deer abundance are are just a bit too crude. Um, So I still suspect that deer might be having an influence. Um, uh, Woodcock tend to nest in quite sparse vegetation but they like to take the broods into areas of more dense vegetation and particularly areas with um, an understory layer. So that could be hazel or holly or some sort of cover from predators from above, avian predators. Um, And I think deer could be subtly altering uh, the ground layer vegetation um, and consequently, you know, predisposing nests to predation um, and possibly leading to greater drying, you know, more rapid drying out of soils in summer and making it slightly harder for the chicks. You know, I think it's these things are always complex and it's very unlikely to be one single factor. It's more likely to be an interaction of factors. Um, and as we're all well aware, deer numbers are increasing across Britain pretty rapidly. Hmm. I'm, I'm curious to know whether there has, has there been any cases historically or even, even currently of um, planting specifically with woodcock in mind? You know, we know of um, planting with with shooting in mind certainly, but specifically woodcock. I would imagine probably historically there was, but I, I can't think of any that I know of myself. Um, so particularly in the southwest, um, if you go down to Devon and Cornwall, um, around the turn, you know, early 1900s, there was specific planting, particularly of, of laurels and rhododendrons. 
you know, under under Oakwood, um, to harbour greater numbers of, of woodcock in winter, um, and every autumn, you know, the keeper would be tasked with opening up rides and clearings so that the birds could easily drop in, and then they'd have you know, available cover. Um, particularly to shelter from the rain during the day. Hmm, interesting. Um, in terms of, I mean, one of the reasons that um, we're, we're talking about this n- now and the reason why we've got uh, your, yourself and Owen on the podcast yesterday was because woodcock as a species and, and shooting it has come into the press the last couple of weeks uh, because of the, the population dynamics that we're seeing this year with the sampling that's been done. Can you just explain that so that people can understand? Because I think there's been a little bit of confusion when I look at um, forums and comments and stuff online. A lot of people say, well, I've seen more woodcock than I've seen for 10 years, but that's not really the point behind the advice that's come out. Uh, No, it's not simply the numbers. Um, What's important is is the age ratio. Um, So it's the the proportion of first-year birds, so birds that have hatched as chicks this summer, to adult birds, those older birds, um, and through Owen's ringing, my ringing, and you know Owen's network of ringers across Britain, but also my correspondence with scientists in Russia, in France, in Italy, we're, we're all seeing the same thing: a much lower proportion of those first-year um, juvenile birds this autumn compared with with previous winters um so the risk is that if you shoot too hard you're actually eating into those adult birds the the breeding stock um and it will then take longer for the population to recover in future years um than if we just show a bit more restraint this year and there there is evidence that it's the, the birds, the migratory birds that are coming in are coming back to the same location. So essentially it is the birds on the piece of uh, ground that you have the shooting on that essentially you're shooting for next year as well. Uh, that's right. That's a, that's a piece of work that we're hoping to start writing up next year. But um, both the satellite tagged individuals uh, that we've been following over the last five years um, and a lot of the birds that Owen and I ring are extremely sight faithful. So we've had birds that have gone um, up to 7,000 kilometers to breed in in central Russia, in Siberia, and they've come back to exactly the field in Cornwall where we've caught them the previous winter. how we how they do it, we you know we simply don't know. Incredible. But, nature's but incredible. The point is that exactly nature's incredible, um, and we are finding you know seventy to eighty percent of birds are strongly sight faithful. So yes, if if you do shoot too hard, you're breaking that migratory link. Um, potentially, you'll see fewer birds in future. That's a that's a really key point for people to understand that because I think it's probably not particularly well known or particularly well understood that i think a lot of people um who shoot woodcock just think well these are the visitors so they're randomly distributed across the country and i'm not really going to affect whatever's happening next year by what i'm shooting but that on the face of it does kind of change the mindset that you should be thinking about shooting woodcock and and i asked um owen this question uh yesterday but i was uh, there was sort of an uncertainty as towards the the link and i'm not sure if it's just because this the work hasn't been done yet but is there any evidence to suggest that these birds that are coming back to the same area 
it, the same is also true of their progeny for, that were that, that nested. Uh, that we don't know. Okay, that, that's um, what Owen said. I was just thought I'd just check just in case there was some other bit of information that he didn't know. Uh, yes, um, we've certainly not done any genetic work, and I'm not aware of anyone else in Europe having done it. Um, it it's actually pretty tricky to do to to ascertain that. Um, we would need to take blood or blood samples to to do the genetics to work it out. Um, we. As I say, we through through our tracking work, we better understand you know, what the birds are doing, um, but we don't know enough about you know relatedness and whether they migrate in groups, um, exactly how they undertake those migrations. We we still don't fully understand. There's a lot lot of work a lot of work to be done yet. Um, so just just to reiterate the. The advice that the GWCT put out, well, and the, in fact, I think the article that, that I um, that I read was written by written by you. Uh, can yeah. you just reiterate that advice, just for people listening to this who shoot woodcock at points throughout the season, as to what they need to be thinking about? Um, so, because our breeding birds are in decline, um, and as I say, we, we've got some evidence that predation is an issue because, as you say, they're ground nesters, um, so both the chicks and the, the eggs are vulnerable. We've got some evidence that predation is an issue. We've got some evidence that habitats are changing and that um, uh, doing some work to improve habitats will be beneficial, but we don't fully understand yet the, the impact of of shooting on woodcock. Um, the majority of what uh, those that are shot each winter will be migrants from abroad, but inevitably some of our resident birds will be shot. Um, we know from our ringing and from our tracking that um, the migrants really aren't coming in till late October, middle of November, a lot of years. So this year we've come out and said prefer people not to shoot until after the 1st of December because that will offer some protection to our, our resident birds. You know, let the migrants come in and build up because we know that their populations aren't at risk um, and that will reduce the chance of, of shooting a resident bird. Um, but this year also, in light of our ringing and information uh, from people that have been aging their bags, uh, not just in this country, but as I say, in France and Italy, everyone's finding a much lower proportion of, of those first year juvenile birds. Um, we've just advised people to rethink their shooting for this season. So um, down in Cornwall, for instance, I've had people call me up and say they're seeing very few birds and those that they've shot have all been adult birds so they've decided no longer to shoot for the rest of this season just to protect their stock for for future years um in other parts of the country you know it may be a bit different so up in scotland for instance where you'd expect a higher proportion of scandinavian birds to be arriving um our information is that they've had a better breeding season in Scandinavia. So it might be possible to have the odd day, but I would certainly consider cutting the number of days this season um, just to ensure that the population isn't hit too hard and has a chance to recover, hopefully, with a better breeding season next year. Yeah, as I discussed with Owen, I think as, as shooters, as hunters, we have a, a responsibility to for our actions 
to re- reflect the best information that we have at hand and obviously the best information that we have at hand right now is is what you have um, you know put out to the to the wider public uh, which is uh, the best knowledge which you have which is based on the, yeah. on, on the ringing so i think we 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 definitely need to spend more time uh, as hunters paying attention to the these things and have the vested interest to to look them up and uh, and care enough to educate ourselves a bit more about the species that we hunt. I think so. We're at a point now where we have much better communication with modern technology with with scientists and hunters across Europe. Um, so we are in a position to get information pretty quickly um, each autumn. And, you know, it's important for me, um, in my role, to feed that through to the the shooting community. But I think it's also prudent of the shooting community in the current climate to, you know, demonstrate self-regulation. Yeah, no, I would would, would agree with that. And one thing I wanted to just touch on while I I had you on the phone with um, regard to Woodcock was also just to talk about the um, voluntary restraint mechanisms uh, and statutory restraint mechanisms we have uh, in place with regard to bad weather. If you could just yes. explain that to people, because that's something else that is very, very important to understand why that's there and the impact on on the birds. Uh, yes. Um, so woodcock have that long bill for a for a reason. They're probing for their food um, and. 70% of what they're eating is uh, is earthworms. Um, they'll also eat leather jackets and beetles. Um, but as you can imagine, as soon as the ground freezes solid, uh, they're struggling. And you know, most shooters will have seen them in, in snow in the middle of the day out on fields when they're pretty vulnerable. They're obviously more fun, vulnerable to avian predators. So I've seen them chased by sparrowhawks um, when there's snow on the ground. Um and so it's important that we reduce disturbance, um, but also reduce hunting mortality in those conditions, because if we get prolonged cold spells, then inevitably um, some of those birds will die. Um, a lot of the legislation was drawn up in the 1960s to protect not just woodcock, but other waders, uh, snipe and golden plover and waterfowl as well. Um, and a couple of years ago, I was in discussion with um, JNCC and started to sort of question the basis on which the legislation currently operates. So currently, um, a voluntary restriction comes in as advised, as advised by um, BASC after seven days, and then we get um, a statutory enforcement after 15 days of, of frozen conditions. Um, but as I say, two years ago, we decided to take the step of, of collecting some birds from shoots, doing dissections and better quantifying the amount of fat reserves that Woodcock could store under different conditions. Um, and also our ringing uh, with Owen uh, enabled us to look at uh, declining body weights as cold weather set in. Um, so we now much better understand the sort of regulation of, of fat reserves by woodcock, um, and it's pretty clear that they can lose up to about 30 grams of body weight. So average body weight in winter is about 320 grams. Um, if they're unable to feed at all, they can lose up to about 30 grams of body weight a day. 
Oh, as much um, as that's right, a day. That is that's incredible. Yes, yes. So um, we're currently advising people to, if the ground is frozen solid, to stop shooting after four days of frozen weather. Um, and a good sort of rule of thumb is if, if you're shooting birds that are weighing less than 260, 270 grams, then you really ought to stop because those birds are struggling. Um, we're, we're now starting some behavioral work tagging birds to look at how they respond in cold weather because it's actually quite unusual that you get, you know, a period of time when the ground is frozen 24 hours. Um, and it seems quite clear that these birds can obviously move. They don't have to stay where they are at the onset of cold weather, so they can fly um, quite reasonable distances, five, six hundred kilometres if they want to, um, so long as they leave at the start of a cold spell. Um, but also very often there are times when the ground comes unfrozen in the middle of the day and you know we've all seen it you get woodcock along stream sides and and muddy puddles um so they change their behavior to to cope to some some degree um so the real issue is is when the ground is absolutely sort of frozen solid continuously as i say for more than three or four days hmm. yeah we've actually we've had some pretty hard weather up uh where i live in the last couple yeah it's very very warm today it's about 10 degrees but prior to this it was very very cold for quite a quite a period of time so it, is there some way that is it better for people to actually look at the piece of ground that they're actually on and make um, a call themselves or is there a mechanism in place for people to um, read I think Basque a couple of years ago I remember it saying and I think actually all the organizations we had a, a long period of very cold weather and they all came out and recommended across the entire country that we, sh we shouldn't be shooting yeah. uh, anymore but that more on a more localized level you might surpass those numbers numbers of days and it might be different just 20 miles down the road exactly so yes you know we're we're in regular dialogue with basque who are in in dialogue with jncc and other organizations when it looks as though there might have to be a call for a, a statutory suspension to shooting um but as you say inevitably local conditions vary and again i think the onus is really on the you know the shoot captain or, or the individual to act responsibly because at the end of the day, you know you're the one who knows your patch best. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you know where the woodcock typically are. Um, if you start seeing them in strange places in the middle of the day, then there's a good indication that perhaps they're struggling to find enough food. Um, so yes, you know, I, I as a shooter, I would just be alert to you know prevailing local conditions um and again just show a bit of restraint when you think you know they might be struggling i think one thing that i'm certainly going to take away from this is i mean we don't shoot a, a massive amount of uh, woodcock it's literally a handful but i'm going to start weighing them as a matter of interest to see yep. what the how it, that changes throughout the season it'll give you a good idea as you suggested exactly what kind of condition they're in uh, yes, it's you know it's very easy to do, um, and it gives you a pretty good indication. You'll you know once once you've weighed them for a year, you'll you'll get an idea of what's typical for your site, mm. um, and then it's pretty easy to spot birds that are uh, in not so good condition. 
Andrew, thank you very much for taking the time out today. I think we've managed to collate some really quite fascinating information, and I'm sure anybody who's listened to this podcast between you, yourself and uh, the discussion I had with Owen yesterday will certainly be far more educated with regard to Woodcock and uh, their patterns, their movements, and how we need to, to view them and care for them uh, going forward. No, thank you. That's no trouble. And that is us for at least another two weeks. I need to look at the calendar, but it will be... I think be, it might almost be three, actually. It might be three, but it'll be the first or... Second week second of Second week of January, uh, we will be back. So when you're back at work, uh, tune back into us and start your year off, and we'll make sure we have a really good podcast to kick we off do. the year with. We're actually recording it yeah. on Friday morning. So It's going to be about deer. Uh, every, we all like deer. We've actually had quite a few requests on doing more podcasts about deer and deer management. We've listened to you, and it's coming, and we're recording it on Friday. We actually did one of the first ever deer management, I think it was episode three. Two, I think it two. was. Two. Oh, there you have it. So it's been almost two years since we did a uh, kind of a deer-based uh, podcast, so we're going to be bringing another one out. Uh, that's it. We're going to let you go. Have a great Christmas. Have a great New Year. Stay safe, and we will speak to you in January. Sent the baby hurry down the chimney tonight Sent the baby a 54 convertible to light